I'll say from the outset that this passage, verses 12 through 20, is packed full of doctrinal and practical content. And I don't know that it's even possible to overstate that case. There, there is the topic that is at hand that he's addressing, but the, there, there are principles here that are far more broad. If, if, if we could understand that, if we could tap into the not only the main force of what Paul's saying, but the principle that Paul is laying out here, if we tapped into that and, and turned on the lever, application would hit us like a fire hydrant in every area of life. Again, I don't think I could overstate this. It's a massive text for all of life. Now, that being said, there's no way we could exhaust it. So I'm going to stick to the main idea. We'll stretch out a little towards the end and just be expectant that in the future as we might cover various topics related to Christian living, many times we'll come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. And we'll, we'll, we'll be reminded of what, it, what was the principle that he laid out there? If that's the principle, then how should we think about this and this and this and this and this? So that, I want you to know that. As we begin, we need to ask the question first, what's the connection between these verses, verses 12 through 20? And what came before it? It's clear, as we just read, that Paul ends this chapter. It wasn't a chapter necessarily for him, but the chapter for us concludes focusing on the sin of sexual immorality. And then chapter 7 begins with, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. We are, we are running up against the major hinge of this epistle. So this argument is not going to extend into the next chapter. He is bringing matters to a point, a conclusion, a climax almost, talking about sexual immorality. So what, how does that relate to what we saw two weeks ago? Well, if you remember in verses 9 through 11, he had been addressing the tendency that the Corinthians had, and we all have this tendency, this tendency to separate the inner self from the outer self so sharply that we imagine that there's no real association between spiritual things and physical things. And that often leads to a religious life that is separated from every other part of life. I have my Sunday stuff, and then I have everything else. And we, we saw that sort of epitomized in that picture of, of the, the forbidden woman in Proverbs 7. This woman who's dressed like a harlot, wily of heart. She's bold of face. She's looking for a victim, an innocent young man, so to speak, innocent, walking by her door. She's looking for someone to grab and to, in the language of the Proverbs, drag to hell with her. But what does she say? I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. In other words, she says, I went about my religious practices. 
I did the worship stuff, the spiritual thing, and now I've come out to run headlong into gross immorality. And, and somehow, in her thinking, that's okay. I did, that's over there. This is over here. She could draw a distinction. And that, was, that is the tendency of all of us. That was the tendency of the Corinthians. And Paul was addressing that. Charles Hodge summarized that section by saying, It is evident that among the members of the Corinthian church, there were some who retained their pagan notion of religion. That kind of thinking that separates spiritual things from physical things or religion from every other part of life, that is paganism. They had retained that, he says, that pagan notion of religion. And they professed Christianity as a system of doctrine and as a form of worship, but not as a rule of life. When I walk into the doors of the church, we, can, we have this confession and we do these things uh, together. We sing, we pray, we read. But when I walk out the doors, I, I'm, I'm essentially set free to go about my business as I please. I've got my Christianity over here. And on Sundays, I do this and this. And maybe in our day, if you're, if you're especially Christian, if you're a, a Christian extremist, you might have some religious things that you do in the morning before you go to work. You, know, you get up and read the Bible, perhaps, or pray. A lot of people do that. I, I would suggest that many false professors get up and read the Bible every day. But then they would say, I've got the rest of my life over here. As soon as that's done, I close it, I get up, and it's like I've walked through a doorway from religious and spiritual things to every other part of life. I have my daily routine. I have my, my own dreams, my own goals, my own life plans. There's a hard separation between all of this. And if you were to ask this person, well, what drives your Christianity? They might say something like, well, it's my soul, my, my inner self. I'm a, a very spiritual person. But then if you were to ask, well, what is driving everything else in your life? They might not say this, but the reality is the lusts of the flesh dictate everything else. If it feels good, if it's comfortable, if it's safe, whatever makes me happy in the moment, that's what I choose. And there's, again, a hard separation. This is the, the very definition of having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I look outwardly pious and religious... But there's no power. It's not flowing into and changing the rest of my life. It hasn't changed me. It's just something that I do. That was the Corinthian problem. This had produced in the Corinthians a view of Christianity that allowed them to act unjustly toward one another, to act like the kind of people who don't go to heaven while remaining perfectly confident that they would enter heaven. They could take one another to law and, and treat one another unjustly, and yet... They didn't see why that was wrong. Because they had separated these two ideas of religion and the rest of life. They would say, how I live and my religion are not associated. And, and we, you, you might know people like this. And it, it really is sad that very often it's the, the truest and most sincere believer who struggles with the assurance of their salvation from time to time but then they'll look outwardly and see somebody who lives like this, openly profligate, unconcerned about morality in any sense, and they've never struggled or questioned their salvation a minute in their life. 
Oh, they're fine. They're on their way to heaven. No question about it. I did this and this. This is this thinking. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I did this. I did that. That's All of that is settled. I've got that in a box. Put my bow around it. Settled. Religion. Salvation. Eternity. And then they go about their life. And we, we, sometimes it seems unfair to us. Why is it that here I am pursuing holiness, pursuing a walk with the Lord regularly, trying as diligently as I can to serve the Lord, and then I have that tendency to then begin to look inwardly too much. And I wonder, how is it, Lord, that I could even be saved? And that person goes about their life that seems skipping down the yellow brick road all the way to hell. They're unconcerned. It's because they've driven this, this, this wedge like the Corinthians had. I think this is the ones that John Owen would say, the peace which they enjoy is mere stupidity. They're just ignorant. They just don't. They're, 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 they're like a, a, a gazelle on the plain thinking, boy, this dried up grass is good, not realizing that the cheetah is 30 yards away about to attack. And so Paul had to correct that thinking. And the truth that he gave, if we were to summarize uh, verse 11, was that true salvation changes the whole man and therefore all of life. If you've been washed, if you've been sanctified, if you've been justified, the whole nature of who you are has been radically changed. And therefore, there's no way that you can take religion or spirituality and tie it up in a nice little box and set it on the corner of your desk and go about the rest of your life in any old way you please. That can't happen. Because your whole life has been changed. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. Now, how, how do we get to sexual immorality from that? That's the question. And even if we didn't have a textual basis, it, most of us, if we sat and thought long enough, we could see how you could eventually get from that type of thinking to sexual sin. But we do have a textual basis. Remember at the start of chapter 5... He had said, chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And remember that we said that it's quite possible that the specific instance that's described in that chapter was just the most extreme example of a more pervasive problem. Sexual immorality might have been more broadly spread in the congregation but he's writing to say, if you're going to be, you at least have to address this problem that is openly repugnant even to pagans. You're making pagans blush. You gotta, you gotta act. So now we, at the end of chapter six, Paul comes back to that subject, sexual immorality. He began in chapter five talking about sexual immorality. Now he comes back to chapter six to conclude that same subject. He comes back to the topic of sexual immorality, but the, 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 the blessing or the benefit of, of the way that he's gone about this is that now he gets to bring with him that topic of the mindset and the approach to religion and all of life that he addressed earlier in chapter 6. So he's got new tools that he can now apply. If, think of it this way. If I called one of the, the handymen in the church... And I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm packing up my family. We're at the park, getting ready to head to the house. I would say, well, listen, 
I got a big problem. I, I, got, I got water dumping all over my basement. I need some help. He would say, okay, I'll be there. Now, what would be better for me if he just came straight there with his whole family or if he said, I'll be there, but I'm going to have to go buy my house and get my truck and my tools? We would want the second one. Now, in, as water dumps into my basement, I'm not thinking, boy, I'm sure I'm glad that he's going to his house, that he's stopping at that stop sign, taking a right, going to his house, making sure his family's in the door, changing his clothes. All of that stuff doesn't seem like it applies to my problem. But when he gets to my house prepared to work with all of his tools, I'm thankful that he took that long way around to get to, to address the problem. See, that's kind of what we've done here is it's not like we left sexual immorality. It's that Paul went the long way around to address what is the actual problem with sexual immorality, with lawsuits and believers, and that is the way that the Corinthians were thinking in separating religion from everything else in their life. And that's very important because that teaches us that in the mind of the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the problem of sexual immorality was rooted in their thinking. Their thinking. The same thinking that led to taking one another to court is the same thinking that led to sexual immorality. Now, I think it's acceptable to say some of those sins are uh, more... Uh, are greater in their severity. I think he even shows that here. But the, the mindset leads to both. Because they thought wrongly and separated Christian spirituality from the deeds done in the body, they had drifted back into using their bodies in any way that they pleased, and that resulted in sexual immorality. And that's what Paul's addressing here, the mindset the thinking that would let a, a professing believer continue in sexual sin. So, that being said, I want to look at these verses under two headings. The first is the Corinthian flaw exposed, and the second is the divine remedy applied. So first, the Corinthian flaw exposed. Again, the problem here is a way of thinking. It's a thought process. It was the way that they approached the subject of religion versus the rest of life. And in, in verses 12 through 13a, Paul exposes their thinking. And I, I think we can pretty quickly see what the problem was. Let me read those verses again. I'm going I'm to read them very neutrally. And then we're going to talk about how we might understand these verses or, or interpret them, and, and this, will be, this will be more didactic. I've struggled with how far to really go into this, but I want you to understand what's happening. So 12 to 13a, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, if commentators agree on anything, it's that these verses are kind of hard to interpret because there are differences of opinion about what's, what's going on. You, you might, if you're just holding one Bible in your hand, you might say, I don't, I don't see the problem. And, and that is the problem, uh, or, or that evidence is the problem. If you were to look at multiple English translations, you would see the difference in interpretation 
based literally on just quotation marks. If you're using an ESV, you've got quotations mark, quotation marks in here that King James, the New King James, the, the NASB don't have. Um, if you're using an NIV, you've got quotation marks in a different place. The, the, all of that is interpretive. In the original, there was no punctuation at all. So the, the, the thinking is, uh, we think the, the apostle is doing this, and therefore to make that clear, let's put in quotation marks or leave out quotation marks depending on how you read it. So let me, let me give you the three options about how we might read these verses. Option one would be to leave out all quotation marks, again, like we would see in the King James, the New King James, the NAS. And so it would read as three sentences all out of the apostle's mouth, this is his teaching. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, if we read it that way, a few things I think would be clear. The first of which would be, we would probably want to or assume that that phrase, all things, is qualified in some sense. Surely the apostle is not addressing sexual immorality and also saying, Everything is lawful for a Christian. Nothing is unlawful for us under any circumstance. We know that's not true. There are things that are unlawful. So when he says all things are lawful, he might be referring to matters that fall into the category of Christian liberty. Or he might be referring specifically to matters regarding food, which he addresses. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The point that he would be making here is that something beyond... Mere liberty must dictate our actions. When he says all things, that's things in the category of Christian liberty or maybe food in particular, but something has to dictate that beyond, well, it's Christian liberty. There's more than that, namely expediency or helpfulness. Not all things are helpful. Not all things are expedient. Freedom. I will not be dominated by anything. If, if this thing is dominating me, then it's no longer in the category of liberty. Or, with the last phrase, I'm, I'm calling that non-ultimacy. If, if the apostle is teaching, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other, what he's saying is the, the stomach and food are not ultimate and eternal matters. They are going to come under the destructive power of God, and therefore what you do needs to be judged based on that fact. It's not an ultimate thing. How I need to hold ultimate things in the place of ultimacy and non-ultimate things in, in their rightful place. Those things must dictate how we go about matters of liberty. So we cannot just say, this would be the teaching, we cannot just say, well, if it feels good, do it. Now, most of us agree that we're not allowed to do that as Christians. We don't live our lives by saying, well, if it feels good, do it. Right? We get that. But we also can't say, if it's a matter of Christian liberty, then do it. We also can't say that. Why? Because there are additional criteria. So it's in the area of Christian liberty, okay? Now we can begin to apply these other criteria. Criteria Is it helpful? 
expedient. Am I enslaved to this thing or no? Am I really free as I do this? Am I making an eternal matter or, or a, a, a non-eternal matter into a matter of eternal significance? Am I placing too much weight on this thing? These are other criteria that would have to judge our actions. But again, the, the, the basic idea is something beyond liberty must dictate our actions. So that's the first way to read it. Option two would be to read the passage with quotation marks like we would see in the ESV or the MEV. It's not quite as popular, but also puts the quotes in the same place. The idea here is that whatever is in quotation marks is a or was a common Corinthian slogan. He had heard them say this, maybe in the church or maybe in their culture, their worldview. He had heard them say, all things are lawful for me. That was their, their slogan. And he repeats that back to them as if to say, now you say all things are lawful and now I'm going to put a little correction on that, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul corrects it. But I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then the quotation ends and Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. That there is, that there are judgment day realities that affect the things that you're pretending mean nothing. Perhaps the Corinthians had heard the, the apostle as he repeated teachings like, Christ in Matthew 15, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Maybe they heard something like that. And they said, oh, okay, well, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. I can do whatever I want when it comes to food. I can put whatever I want to in my mouth, however much I want to. It doesn't matter. And they had gone too far. They perhaps began to think there are no rules with regard to food. Now, some of us might think that way. Right? I'm a Gentile. Pass the bacon. I can eat all I want. Can you? Are there no rules? Or are there some rules? Again, Paul's responses to their slogans, not all things are helpful, I will not be dominated by anything, his responses would be insinuating, again, there's something beyond liberty that must dictate our actions. We can't just say, well, I'm a Gentile and I believe we've been set free from all the legal burdens of the law and I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, however much I want. That's the way the Corinthians thought, perhaps. A Christian can't say that. The body and its uses and its actions are not inconsequential or irrelevant. Our bodily actions must be weighed again by these same criteria. Is it helpful can you, is it possible for you to eat a five-gallon bucket full of bacon? Maybe. Is that helpful? Is that going to be expedient for you? Is that going to be profitable? If you eat a five-gallon bucket of bacon every morning, every day, and, and you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm at liberty. We, we don't have any food laws. And I say, don't you think maybe that's bad for you? And you bite my head off. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't eat? Well, it, mm, it sounds like maybe you're dominated by bacon. That thing's got control of you. That's not in the realm of liberty anymore, right? You see the, the illustration. Are you treating something temporal as if it were 
eternal. Who are you to tell me? Are you saying I'm not a Christian because I'm eating bacon? Are you? Well, it sounds like you're saying that I can't apply any criteria uh, to, to what you do or don't do. Again, the point, again, is really the same teaching. Something besides the liberty card dictates what we do with our physical bodies. Option three is the same as option two, except the quotation marks go all the way to the end of that final statement. So the Corinthian slogans are, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. See how that just goes a little further. It takes that that dualistic idea or that, that reduction of the body even further to say, what does it matter with what I do with my body? God's just going to destroy it. Who cares? And again, Paul is correcting that thinking by saying, not all things are helpful. I will not be dominated by anything. And then in the next verse, or in the latter part of the verse, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. There are, again, rules for using your body. If it was a part of their slogan to say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other, what are they saying? They're saying the body, the physical body, is essentially disposable. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. God's going to destroy it anyway. What do I care? It's irrelevant and inconsequential. Now those are the three primary ways of reading these verses, trying to figure out what the apostle is doing. However you decide to read them, they basically all funnel into the same gist of teaching, the same application. The problem with the Corinthians remains the same. They had divided up their lives into spiritual and religious on one side, physical and moral on the other side. In their minds, the physical and moral aspects of life were unrelated to religious life, completely irrelevant, inconsequential. And therefore to them, the physical body and its interaction with the physical world is not related to my spirituality, my religion. My religion is over here. It's nice and neat. It's in a box with a ribbon and a bow on the corner of my desk. And then what I do with my physical body everywhere else, that is completely separate. It's a separate matter. And even perhaps to the extent that they would say, God's going to destroy it, so who cares what I do with my body? Now this obviously leads to a low view of the human body. A view which treats the physical body as an irrelevant, expendable appendage. This leads to the thinking that says the body is just in the way. The body is just a burden. This old, this old bag of bones is just a burden i got to carry around with me. This body will someday fall away and then true spirituality will reign. I'll be released. You ever anything like that? Have you ever thought anything like that? If I could just get released from this body, then I could be more spiritual. And people even go so far as to say, well, the, the body will be shed someday. So until then, 
Just use the body in any way you see fit. Just pamper it. Make sure it's happy. Make sure it's comfortable. Make sure it's at ease. Make sure it's full of pleasure. Just enjoy the physical life as long as you can and, and make do with that old bag of bones until you're able to shed the body. Therefore, the stomach would have no greater purpose than food. Food would have no greater purpose than to fill the stomach. There would be no spiritual or moral principles governing the body in that area. Now, everybody, all, all of the commentators are agreed that when, when Paul mentions expediency or helpfulness and slavery to different things, the, the teaching is always that there are higher principles that are to govern or guide the actions of our physical bodies. That's what he's saying. So get this. I'm going to say it in a short axiomatic statement. There are biblical God-given principles that are to govern the use of our physical bodies. Pretty simple, right? There are biblical God-given principles that are to govern the use of our physical bodies. Now, the connection between that, if they were saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, they're just talking about food. Well, the connection between that and sexual immorality seems pretty obvious. If that's the way you think about your stomach and food and the appetites and what makes your tongue feel good, then it's, you're probably not far from using other parts of your bodies to make other parts of your bodies feel good. Why would you, if, if this is the way you think about your body, it's just going to throw, it's just a physical thing. It's just a clump of cells, just bigger. And God's going to destroy it anyway. So why would you not go ahead and just fulfill every lust and fantasy that your heart can dream up? It's just physical. It's just a body or two bodies. That's the Corinthian flaw. And it's that that Paul attacks. So number two is the divine remedy applied. The divine remedy applied in verses 13b through the end of the chapter. Paul here rattles off a list of basic biblical truth as the remedy for their error. And he, he says repeatedly here, or do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? He's coming back to basics, fundamentals. But basic biblical truth. Their, their error at its root was in the mind. It was their thinking. The fruit of it was sexual immorality. The fruit of it was taking one another to court. But the error ultimately was that they were thinking wrong. Well, how do you correct wrong thinking? How do you correct erroneous thinking? You give the truth. An open statement of the truth. And that's what he does. In their approach, the physical body is an irrelevant, expendable appendage and it has no bearing on spirituality or your spiritual health. What I do with my body, what I do to my body, is not related to Christianity. Those are separate. Christianity only relates to the soul, the inner self, the inner man. All of that is fundamentally false in the Christian system. Fundamentally wrong, according to the teaching of the Bible. So what are the truths which correct this error? Paul gives us five. Number one, the body is created for, by God and for God. The body is created by God and for God. 
the physical part of our human nature, our skin, our bones, our hair, our intestines, our blood, our toenails, that physical part was created by God and for God. Look at the text, verse 13b. The body is not meant for sexual, sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now he states it negatively first because this was their sin. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The, the human body, the physical parts of your body, they don't exist for sexual immorality, sexual sin. But positively, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, the body exists for the Lord, for His purposes, for His use, for His service. What he's saying is you Corinthians are using your body in a way that God never intended. Pretty simple, right? What does that imply? God has an intention for your body. Not, you don't get to set the intentions. He sets the intentions because He made it. And that's what, that's what he's saying. You're, you're, you're not to use your body in a way contrary to the way God has intended. The body was created by God and for God. And we, When he says the body... I think we should take that as a general reference to that physical part of every human being. The body. Not, not just your body or our bodies, but the body. The, the human body as, a, as an idea instantiated in every human person. The body. This applies to all of the bodies of all people, extending all the way back to the first bodies of the first human beings who were ever created. The body was created by God and for God. We read in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. In Genesis 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. That's his physical body from dust. God made that body. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He took that physical human being and placed him in a location on this planet for a purpose, to work and keep the garden. God made man after his own image, formed the human body, from dust of the ground, took the human body, put it in his garden, and God gave Adam work to do which could only be performed by using that physical body that God had made for him. The physical body was God's idea. The physical body is God's invention. It is the result of God's creative work. The physical body exists to serve the purposes and intentions which God alone can dictate. Only God can say with absolute unquestioned authority, the body is to be used this way. And if we, con if we contradict that, we go contrary to that, or we begin to think that, well, maybe I think I got some ideas for what the body could be used for too. We're going against this basic principle. God created the body. The body is created by God for God. This must be a part of our thinking. If your physical body is an irrelevant, expendable appendage, why did God create it? 
Why didn't he just make you a, a soul floating around? Save that soul, bring it to heaven as a soul. Why, why a physical body? It's because he had a purpose and an intention. When he finished the creation, he said, this is all very good. He didn't say it's all very good and then as a bonus, I'm going to add a physical body to the man. No, that was a part of the very good creation. The body is created by God and for God. God's design and for God's service. Truth number two. The body will be raised on the last day. The body will be raised on the last day. So Paul just went from the initial creation of all human bodies all the way to the future of the Christian body in glory. Verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. God raised up the physical body of Jesus Christ. The first step We men have been reading the first step in the exaltation and reward of Christ for all of His labors was that He came out of the tomb. He was raised from the dead. And following Him who is the firstfruits, we also will have our physical bodies raised from the dead. That physical body that you're sitting in right now Yes, it will more than likely someday die, someday be buried. More than likely it will decay in the ground. But that body is going to come out of the ground, that same body. Later in this epistle, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, you can imagine Paul saying this, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? These bodies will be raised up These bodies will be changed. Not a new body, the same body changed. Imperishable and immortal. The same bodies that we have now changed in such a way that they last forever and ever without decay. They're not subject to death forever. There will not be, at the moment of the resurrection, there will not be a hint or a trace, or a single reminder in your physical body that you were ever subject to the curse of sin. Ever fallen, ever weak. All of that taken away in a moment, we can't comprehend it. We don't know what that's like. Even even to stand here now, I might not be realizing it, but my my body is under the pressure of, of its own weight, holding itself up. 
The, the, the curse of sin and the weakness of the body over the years is going to make my legs do feel like they're putting forth more and more effort just to stand, to stand, to stand. But in a moment, all of that's gone. And it will be as if there's no corruption in the physical body at all. In Romans 8, 11, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through His Spirit who dwells in you. Your mortal body, that one you're sitting in, is going to come out of the ground. God is going to bring life to your body. That body that you have will be the body. You're sitting in the body in which you will enjoy personal fellowship with Christ forever. It's going to be raised if you're a Christian. And therefore, again, this body is not an irrelevant, expendable appendage. It's not a throwaway part. It's not like paper plates and plastic forks. It's not like the wrapping paper outside of a gift. It was created by God for God's service. And God Himself is going to raise it up someday and gloriously remove all of the effects of sin so that it lasts forever and ever and ever into eternity in a million years, as fresh and as youthful and as vibrant and as vigorous as it was the day it came out of the ground. Paul says it's a mystery. This body is the object of God's resurrecting power. Truth number three. The body is united to Christ. Verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Truth number three, your physical body takes part in the most blessed of all gospel truth. And that is union with Christ. This bond that we share with Christ by His Spirit indwelling us so that all of His accomplishments and rewards are ours as if we had performed His work. This spiritual union is not merely a union of the inner man. It's not just a union of the spirit and the soul. Our bodies, our physical bodies are essentially integrated into that same union. I can't explain it. I, I don't know how this is or can be. But it is true. So that to give a cup of cool water, to cool the tongue and satisfy the thirsty palate of a Christian is to do it to Christ. Because that tongue... And that palate and those weary muscles have been joined to Jesus Christ. The flip side of that, to have the bodies of the saints dragged off to prison, to beat them, to spit upon them, to speak harsh words into their ears, is to do so, is to persecute Christ. And this is why Christ came to Saul and He says, Why do you persecute me? What do you mean, you? All those bodies you've been dragging off to prison? Binding them hand and foot, taking them off for being Christians? That's me, Jesus said. That's me. Those are my members. Oh, we ought to be careful how we talk about Christians. Professing Christians. 
Do they agree with us on everything? No. Do they do everything that we do like we do it? No. But we had better guard our mouths and our thoughts when we think and speak about those who we can in good confidence say, I believe they're a Christian. Even if we have to say it with a, 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 a head drooped low because of something they've done, we had better be careful because we're talking about the sheep of Christ. They're His. And I don't want to stand before Him any day and hear Him say, why did you talk that way about my members? You were talking about my people. Our bodies are joined to Christ. When we lay the physical body of a Christian in the ground, that body is a member of Christ. Paul could say, 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and, notice this phrase, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ now, the spirit doesn't die. Only a body dies. Only, only a body is dead. And so this, the dead, applies just as much to the physical body of a Christian as anything. That dead body is dead in Christ. Dead and yet still in union with Christ. And I do think that we can, and probably often do go potentially too far, this thinking that the Corinthians had, pervades our Christian culture. This is, this is, we think, oh, that's a bunch of paganism. No, this is pretty much what we have all been raised in. But we can go too far at the funeral of a Christian when we say, he's not here. This ain't him. This is just a body. He's gone. I think the Lord would say, as we're going to see in a minute, actually, that's my body. That's a part of him. And that body is going to come up someday and they're going to come back together. It's not. Again, we, we, we make it sound like that body laying there is an irrelevant, expendable appendage, but the real person is somewhere else. No, we are body and soul. We, we are the real person. We're not more real separated from our bodies. How do I know that? Because in the, glory, in the glorification, our bodies are going to be brought back. That's the real us. The body is a member of Christ that, miss, that body is in mystic, sweet communion with Jesus Christ. And that body, from the time that the soul departs to the time that it's raised up, is under the watchful eye of the God who created it. The body is in union with Christ. I think this is a part of why, particularly, historically, Christians do not burn the bodies of their dead. They bury them. They plant them in the ground, 1 Corinthians 15. Plant them. Why? Because you're expecting something to come up. And this is why cemeteries all around, all, the, all of the graves are facing the east, awaiting the return of Christ where the bodies will come out of the ground. There's a Christian theology behind things that Christians have done for a long time. Uh, we are not the smartest ones to come along by a long shot. But this is, this is the theology behind it. That body that we lay in the ground, we do so because it's being planted. 1 Corinthians 15, that's the word, planted like a seed that's going to come back. It's going to bear forth glorious fruit. And so Paul asks, in light of this, shall I take the members of Christ 
and make them members of a prostitute? I wanted to, to write more to illustrate what he's, the question he's asking there. I couldn't bring myself to write it. The thought of it should leave us bewildered. The, the, the members of Christ in sexual immorality to a prostitute... We, 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 it, it, it should not even be able to be brought to our minds without horror and disgust. And yet that's what he's saying. If you're a Christian and you engage in sexual immorality, that's what you're doing. Because our bodies are united to Christ the Lord. Truth number four, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 and 19, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Notice what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Run. Run. Get away from the act. Get away from the temptation. Run from the thoughts. Run from the conversations. Well, they'll think I'm weird. Good. You are weird to them. Flee the conversations. Flee the images that are designed to get your mental wheels turning on your phone or the videos that either depict or just talk about. Just words that put images and ideas in your mind that get your wheels turning in the direction of sexual immorality. Run from it, he says. Get out of there. Now, we parents need to understand something. When it comes to stories and movies, and I think this is especially pertinent with our young daughters, of the few things that will stick in their minds long after the credits have rolled and we've turned it off, there will be the way that boy looked at that girl. And the way that girl looked at that boy and the, the conversations and the interactions that they had that, that broke all of the boundaries of personal space. They, they got real close to each other. And your little children were wondering, why are they talking so close? Why are they doing that? Or that embrace or even that kiss that is framed in by all the magic that modern cinematography can create to make that the most emotionally impressive moment of the whole movie with sounds and music and cameras. They want to suck you into that. Watch him and her. See what they do. That's how it's designed. It's made for that purpose. It's sexual immorality depicted on the big screen. Well, it's just a kiss. Well, let your wife just kiss another man. It's, it's, it's not a big deal, right? Well they're, well, they're just doing this. They're just doing, what you don't want your wife doing with another man, you should not be watching other people do on the screen. It's, it's breaking the boundary of the relationship between a man and a woman ordered by the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. There is one man, there is one woman. It's sexual immorality depicted on the big screen aimed to entice and seduce our sons and daughters 
It is aimed to make their minds whirl in the middle of the night after you've gone to bed, and they've just got to sit there and think about that. I wonder what that was about, and I wonder what that felt like. And, and, and it did kind of do something inside of me as I watched that. There was some emotion stirring. All of that is designed by people who hate your children. They hate you. And the enemy will use it to suck us in, to suck them into sexual perversion. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Don't put the thoughts in your head, in their heads. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck than to put that stuff before your eye, the eyes of your children and then just let them deal with it. Children, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Run from that stuff. I tell my kids, this is my, my rule at my house, so if it ever comes up, this is where they got it from. If these conversations happen, this is being talked about amongst your peers, these types of things, walk away. Go find an adult and say, these are the things they're talking about. Get away from there. Make it stop. Rid yourself of it. I, th those thoughts, those images, those sounds, those pictures have no place in the mind of a 5-year-old or a 6-year-old or a 7-year-old or even a 12 or 13-year-old especially. Run from it. There, there are a few things in the Bible God says, run from it. And this is one of them. Get away. Now, what's the truth that should dissuade us from sexual immorality? Or, or what is the truth that should push us to say, yeah, I'm going to run? Notice what he says. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. The Lord said in John 14, the spirit of truth will be in you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now here, I would refer you back to what we learned in chapter 3 about the church as God's temple. Quite a few of you made comments about how uh, grave and serious you realized the church is. The church is the temple of God. What are your convictions about the church? How should the church function? Who has the right to dictate the operations of the church? What level of purity should we expect in the church? In, in all of those things... Most of us, I believe, would stand firmly and dogmatically in the Reformed tradition and things like our confession where we don't want to give any footing or leniency to relaxed views regarding the church. We love the regulative principle. We believe in church discipline. Why? Because the church is the temple of God. Put all that back in your mind. Go back to chapter 3. Oh, yeah, the church. All oh, the church. I know all those churches out there are not like our church because our church is holy. Our church is the temple of God. We would never allow that mess in our church because we have a high view of the church. All right, now, do you have the same convictions with regard to your physical body? Because he's saying the same thing. The church is the temple of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Same thing. Do you guard your physical body with the same holy violence that you would guard the church with? Do you strive to promote the same kind of purity and dignity with regard to your body as you would the church? And if not, why not? The church is the temple of the Lord. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why is it okay to keep sin out of the church Or, or, or I should say, why do we 
strives so vehemently to keep sin out of the church, but we don't mind pouring trash in our mouths. That's kind of what I figured the response would be. Why is it that if anything seems to have slipped under the radar in church affairs, we're up in arms, we demand that action ought to be taken, but then we will sit in self-pampering carelessness towards our physical bodies. We would say things like, well, the church... Maybe not all of these would be from your mouth, but we might think things. I think these are appropriate things to think. The church should have a nice building, well-kept grounds, a pretty sign, a nice website, but what I wear out in public is my business and no one else's. Why do we have different standards? We want to promote, we want to promote the gospel in Christ well, you know, because the church is the temple of God. Right. Your body is also the temple of God. Not, I'm not saying it's in the same way. I'm not saying the church is the temple. I don't think he's saying that. The church is the temple in exactly the same way that the body is the temple. But there, there is without a doubt a, a relation. It's close enough to say it's hard to articulate the difference. Has it ever been acceptable to desecrate the temple of the Lord? Ever? Has it ever been acceptable to bring profane things into the temple of the Lord? Has it ever been the rule that the temple of the Lord is to be treated however you feel? Has has that ever been the case? No. So then remember, your body is the temple of the Lord. Truth number five. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Your body belongs to God who bought it. Now this might be the most comprehensive truth that we should always keep in our minds. You, that is your body, you are not your own. Your body does not belong to you. Your body is not yours to do with as you please. Now, most of us would rightly so be be quite upset if we had someone who held the view with regard to abortion, my body, my choice, right? We'd say, no, that that doesn't fly here because that infant inside of you is not your body, so it's not your choice, okay? Turn the mirror around. Your body is not yours, so it's not your choice. That's what he's saying. Your, your body is not yours. It belongs to the Lord. You were bought with a price. God not only created your body, but in light of the fall into sin, He also bought your body back from the bondage of sin and death by the blood of His Son. In chapter 15, Christians are called those who belong to Christ. Verse 23. Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That is, we are His possession. Well, what's the, what are the limitations on this possession? As long as we're alive, we're His, but then once we die, we're not, or, or our bodies go in the ground, they're not His anymore. No, that's not what it said. If we live... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Alive or dead, we belong to the Lord. The dead body is the Lord's dead body. The living body is the Lord's living body. Your physical body, alive or dead, is the purchased possession of God. You're not your own. Peter talks about that purchase. We've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And in in the context there, 
verses 17 through 19, you can read it, but he, he addresses things like the deeds and the conduct and our time of exile, our ways, not just spiritual things, but our, our whole life in this world as human beings, the ways that we've inherited from our forefathers, God bought us out of that with the blood of His Son. We as body and soul human beings have been ransomed body and soul from the feudal ways of our forefathers. Habits of thinking and feeling as well as doing in our physical bodies with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus, God's own Son, was the purchase price. He paid the price. He owns your body. He owns you by creation, right? He owns you by new creation, right? He owns you doubly over if you're a Christian. We must keep this truth in mind. That your body is not yours. My body is not mine. Your body and my body are the possession of Christ. He owns them. He exercises supreme authoritative rights. You are not your own. Five truths which contrast the erroneous thinking that the body is irrelevant with regard to our relationship to God or spiritual things or religion. Five truths. The antidote to sexual sin is not saying, just stop, or you just got to quit, or man, that's gross. That, that doesn't work. That's not the antidote. There is a divine remedy which requires that we go back to the Word of God and see what it says about the body and about who we are now and what we will someday be so that our minds can be transformed or renewed, transformed according to the truth. The Word of God is not silent about the physical body, its origins, its purpose, or its state in God's plan of redemption. There are biblical, God-given principles that are to govern the use of our physical bodies. With respect to sexual sin, the Christian should say with Joseph, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? The God who made me to worship Him, the God who's going to raise my body out of the ground soon, the God who joined my body to His Son, the God who made my body a temple of His Holy Spirit, the God who bought my body with the blood of His own Son, how could I sin against that God with this body? A great wickedness, Joseph called it. The divine antidote never begins or terminates merely in restraining the flesh. A lot of people can restrain the flesh. For a Christian, it begins in the affections, the renewal of our minds, because our salvation begins first with the inner man and flows necessarily out into the body in all of its uses. So what is the application? The end of verse 20. So, glorify God in your body. Use your physical body according to the truths laid out in the Word of God regarding its usage. Use your physical body in such a way that magnifies God according to His own perfections, but also according to the prerogative that He has as owner of your body. Glorify Him in your body. When it comes to things that we do with our bodies or put in our mouths or put on our bodies, the list is endless. Mere liberty is insufficient. A lot of Christians are wrong here. Well, the Bible doesn't address that, so I'm, I'm basically free. No, you're not. 
if the Bible really doesn't address that issue, you are now free to take that thing and apply these other criteria. Is it expedient? Is it helpful? Is this helping you or other Christians? Is this pushing you closer and closer to the Lord? Is it promoting godliness in myself and other people? Am I really free to go about this thing? Well, what is my compulsion to do this? Am I enslaved or not? A good rule of thumb, there might be something that somebody approaches you and says, Hey, uh, i got a question about this. You've been doing this. I'm just not sure that's something a Christian should be doing. If you immediately get defensive, well, how dare you? Who are you to talk about? You're probably enslaved already. It's no longer a matter of liberty anymore because you're enslaved. Or are you treating a temporal thing as if it were an eternal thing? Are you weighing that thing in the balance of the judgment day? And ultimately the question, does this activity glorify God? The Bible has nothing to say about it whatsoever. It's in the matter of liberty. Okay, does it glorify God? And you can see how this principle extends far beyond sexual immorality. It encompasses everything we do with our physical bodies. This principle addresses what we wear, what we put on our physical bodies. This principle encompasses how we steward our appearance. How we steward our appearance. God has given us all an outward body. Things. Eyes, noses, mouths, hairs, ears, legs, arms, torso, things. <clears throat> God's given us all that. Okay, it belongs to Him, but He's given it to us to steward it. So how am I stewarding that in the world in which I live? We're going to see in, in chapter 11, ladies, your hair is your glory. How are you stewarding your glory? That's, 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 it's a Christian thing to think about. Same for the men. Your hair is not your glory, but how are you stewarding your appearance? When people see you, when they look at your outward form, what, what impression do they get? What, what is that putting off to other people? How, it addresses how we steward our appearance. It, it answers the question, should I exercise or should I not exercise? How much sleep should I get? Am I getting too much or am I not getting enough? What kind of hobbies or pastimes we involve ourselves in? Some of you have seen the, the new thing, I guess, maybe it's, I don't know, these slapping competitions. That's, that's ridiculous. It's, it's so silly. Hopefully nobody comes in here with a swelled up blue face and they're like, I'm a professional slapper. That's not expedient. That's not helping anybody. God did not design the body to be slapped repeatedly. That's not helpful. What kind of hobbies or pastimes we involve ourselves in? What kind and how much food we eat? What kind of drugs we use? It answers all of this. It forces us to have, I think I got this phraseology from Albert Martin, a conscientious, balanced, and biblically informed concern for our physical bodies. We do have to avoid the body worship of our culture, but we also have to avoid the other extreme of neglect and poor health because we're just unconcerned and we're thinking, well, the body, just got, God's just going to destroy both one and the other. It's just going to go in the ground. Who cares? Well, that's the other extreme. That's wrong thinking. We have to avoid the tyranny, the tyranny of social media, or especially what is now a new 
occupation, a social media influencer. They make videos. You know why? To get you to watch them. Guess why? To influence your thinking. But that, that is a new thing. People are generating income this way. And there comes a tyranny with that because you're going to see video after video after video after video either all funneling you into one corner saying, I have to do this, I have to do this, or bouncing you back and forth, back and forth. Milk is bad, no milk is good, no milk is bad, no milk is good, all over the place. I, you don't know what to believe. It's tyranny. You're subjecting your mind to a million voices and you're enslaved. You have to guard against that. Especially young women and mothers. You you have to understand you're a marketing demographic. They know if I can sell something to her, I've got the household. She's going to do whatever she wants. He's going to let her buy whatever she wants. They come after you, capturing weak women. You're a demographic, and people are, are raking in millions of dollars. Just, just not, not by the buy, by the click. They get money by the click. See, just keep that in mind. Avoid... The blame game or the comparison game. As Christians, and, and I've, I've experienced this, but it should not be that if I were to approach an alcoholic and say, you know, you're not supposed to be enslaved to that thing, that, that physical substance you're putting in your body, you're not supposed to be enslaved to it. The Christian response is not, well, you drink coffee. Don't you drink coffee every day? Well, I don't know of anybody who's got drunk off of coffee and killed anybody. There, there is a difference, but that's, that's just not the way a Christian responds with, well, you're giving me this, I'm going to come right back at you with this. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that. Well, Spurgeon smokes cigars. Spurgeon's not my standard. Christ is my standard. What does the Word of God say? These are my criteria. Does this activity suit the design of God for which I was created? Does this activity abuse the body as a throwaway part, contrary to the reality of the resurrection? That is not a throwaway part. Another question that I think is important. Is this something that is going to have to be corrected at the resurrection? So I believe if you have a physical handicap and you're a Christian, when you come out of the grave, you're not going to have that anymore. God's going to, to correct the effects of the fall. If you have a mental handicap and you come out of the grave, that's going to be gone. We're going to be glorified. Okay. I also believe that if you've made decisions to write stuff all over your body, when you come out of the grave, God's going to wipe all that mess off. And I praise the Lord that He's going to wipe all that mess off. So a question that I think is helpful to ask is, am I doing something that God's going to have to correct? Not like it's a a hard thing for him that he's, oh, I'm going to wipe this off. It's no difficulty for him. But the fact of the matter is, if, if, it, if it's not going to make it through the glorification process, then it's probably something I shouldn't be actively pursuing. Does this, is this something that's going to be, have to be corrected in the resurrection process? Does this involve Christ in practices that the man Jesus would avoid? So you read the Gospels, the story of a man named Jesus. Watch how he interacts in the world, okay? I've got a decision to make. Am I going to do this? I'm going to go in my mind to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Would that man do this? Would that man be involved in what I'm about to do? That sounds kind of... They should come up with an acronym and bracelet so we can just put that in our minds all the time. What would Jesus do? Um, 
He is, he is our substitute and our righteousness before God. But He is also our example. We don't have to pick between Christ being our example and our righteousness. He's both. So ask, is this something that the man Jesus would be involved in? If not, I can walk away. Am I treating my body like a common thing rather than the temple of the Lord, a holy thing? Am I making decisions as if my body were mine to do with as I please? And ultimately, does this glorify God? We don't look at other people and say, well, what about them? What about this? You, you can look at me, everything I'm saying, you could come back at me with something. You could come, that, that's easy to do. And I recognize that. I've got to live with that. I have to do dealings with the Lord on these matters myself. But, but I don't turn that around and you and say, well, I, I, I'll compare myself to you. No. No, a Christian says, these are the principles, these are the truths. This is what I must live by now. Maybe I didn't think of this up until today. Moving forward, this is how I govern my activities. It is possible, and this needs to be said as well, it is possible to be health conscious or even health crazy while in reality the glory of God is nowhere in your thinking. So I don't. This, this ought not to sound like, well, the people who only ever eat salads, they're really glorifying God, while the people who do other things are not glorifying God. No, that, no, that's not the truth at all. Many times it is that body worship and obsession with the self that leads people into being health conscious and health crazy. They, they're not thinking about the glory of God. Many times it's tradition. Again, in our day it's popular. You see these things on the internet. You want to be like they used to be in the old days. That's all you're caring about. I just want to be like they used to be in the old days. Well, if you're doing that to glorify God, by all means, praise the Lord. But if, that, if all you're thinking is, I just want to be kind of old-timey-like, that's not honoring to the Lord. And the reality is most of, or say I could say many, of the most popular social media health fads in our day are just ancient paganism repackaged. It's just paganism. Brought, brought, back, brought back up with a new label on it. So you can, you can be very healthy and also very pagan. These are all important matters because they relate to the fullness of the gospel that we preach. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for the whole man. The gospel of Christ applies not only to the next life, but also to this life. Paul would say if we, are, if we have hope only in this life, we're all men most to be pitied. But he didn't say we have no hope in this life. We have hope in this life. The gospel applies to now and what we do with our bodies now. Christ changes us. Our, our, our great hope in the future is not just to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, Paul says. I'm not looking to just get rid of the physical. I'm looking, looking forward to putting on immortality, putting on imperishability. The whole gospel for the whole man purchased by the blood of Christ. Christ has a use and purpose for our physical bodies as long as we live. And we should be living in such a way that extends that usefulness as far as possible within reason using the light of nature, Christian prudence, and the general rules of of the Word of God. Now, you could say, well, you can't add a single span to your life. You can't add a single hour. I know that. But I also believe God uses means 
And God uses the means of our common sense reckoning with a physical body, using these principles to say, Lord, if I, we'll say things like this. If I had a thousand lifetimes, I'd serve the Lord with them. Well, you, can't, you, won't even serve, you don't even want to serve the Lord with two-thirds of the one you got. You're, you're sufficient with 60 years. Why not say, God, I want 80 years. I want 90 years. I want to excel into my aged years when I'm the most useful. The most useful saints are the ones that, that, that they pick up the pace. It's like their feet hit the ground running at 50. And then they take off and begin to serve. Because they've got all of these years of usefulness. We ought not to think, well, I'm just going to blow myself out and burn myself out in my 30s and 40s and then I'll just roll around in a wheelchair for the rest of my days. Now, that may happen. But what's our perspective? God's given me a body. I've only got one. This is the physical body that I'm going to serve the Lord in. How long do I want to serve it? What's He worth? Is He worth me doing what I can to extend that usefulness within human reason as far as I can? I think He is. I think He is. I think we ought to... Hold these two things in balance. Yes, God is sovereign. He's appointed our days. And yet I'm going to live as if obedience is, is adding days so that I can serve Him more and more and more and more. That's, how, that's our thinking. Because, again, Christ bought us with His blood. If He'd pour out His blood for us, what's it, what's it worth? What's our body worth if He'd pour out His blood for it? I would say, he would say, that's a, that's a pretty costly thing. It's to be taken care of. What could possibly give us a higher view of the physical human body than that the Lord of glory would assume it to Himself and walk in it? Just walk in it. Even if He only walked in it for five minutes, we would say that, is, that has now become a very precious thing. The human body is a special thing. To the Lord. And as we think about how we treat our bodies, there's no doubt that we all recognize I've sinned in this area. I've not thought properly. I've not acted properly. There, there have been blind spots, etc. On down the line. Well, the good news is that Christ gave His body in the place of ours. In all of these areas where we have sinned with regard to our physical bodies, every one of them, though Christ never sinned in this area, He never misused, abused, mistreated, or thought uh, too lowly of His physical body. Everything He did with His body was perfectly proper and right and glorifying to God. Though that was His condition, He took upon Himself all of our sins in this area. Every sin and misgiving, every, every sinful thought, wrong thought that we've had where we have fallen short, Christ took the guilt and the burden of that upon Himself in that physical body and that body was crushed in our place. The Father judged our sins in the body of Christ on the cross. So it is hard to hear reminders of our sin. But the reminders of our sin are helpful because they force us to turn and look to the One who has made an end of sin has poured out His blood for our souls. And so as the elements are passed, we are to consider Christ's body, Christ's blood for me. I will not enter glory based on how I have treated my body, but based on how 
God treated the body of Christ and how Christ treated His body, Him, Him in our place. So as the elements are passed, rejoice in that truth and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.